in the middle of um, John 17, which contains Jesus's high priestly prayer. And so it is, uh, it's Friday, uh, it's probably Friday morning early. It's no longer like Thursday night. It's probably the wee hours. Like there's a break there where, which we would say it's midnight, but there's even a break where we'd say it's no longer like uh, early in the morning. It's still middle of the night. And so that's where we are. It's the middle of the night, but it's actually probably Friday, uh, Friday morning. Jesus has uh, probably left the upper room and he's with his disciples and he's walking uh, toward the Garden of Gethsemane where he's gonna pray again. But on the way, Jesus stops and he prays. And here Jesus is praying. And notice that Jesus is praying for, we kind of said this, there's three great themes in the high priestly prayer. Three things that Jesus is praying for. And you can write those down. The first one is he is praying for the Father's glory. That's always on Jesus's mind. So Jesus's death is imminent. Just a few hours away, he's gonna be arrested. And then later on, he'll be tried and beaten, beard plucked from his face. Later on, this same day, Jesus is going to be crucified, nailed to the cross. And on this day, Jesus is going to die. And this, what we see is what's most imminent, what's most pressing upon Jesus's heart and upon Jesus's mind. And it is this, the Father's glory. Father, I want you, desire for you most of all to be glorified. Glorify yourself in me as I am obedient to what you have planned for me. Glorify yourself in the church as well. Secondly, not only is he praying and concerned about the Father's glory, but second, he's concerned about his disciples, these 11 men that Jesus has just spent three years with. And Jesus prays for them, the apostles, but not just for them, as we'll see in next week's text. Think in verse number 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through them, through the word that will be preached through them. He's also praying for his church and that's you and I. He's praying for this future collection of saints that will be ransomed by his blood. And that is is us. Jesus's prayer applies to us. And in this section that we're looking at today, just a few short verses, I want you to notice that there's three things that Jesus is praying for his church three petitions that Jesus gives up to the Father on behalf of his church. And here they are. First, Jesus asks for our security. Jesus prays for our, the church's security. We see that in the words being kept. We're being guarded, being protected from the work of the enemy, from the world. But number two, Jesus also prays for our purity. Sanctify them, Father. Sanctify them in the truth for your word is truth. So Jesus is praying for the church's purity, their security, their purity. And thirdly, that we'll cut for next week, Jesus prays for our unity. So security, purity, and unity. That's easy to remember. And so hopefully you can. This week we'll look at security and purity. But I want you to think about this, that as Jesus prays, Jesus's prayer, even though he's praying for us, it doesn't terminate on us but Jesus prays it so that he might be glorified in his church and that the church might be witnesses to the world. Jesus says here that I'm not taking them out of the world, I'm leaving them in the world. His prayer is that we may be witnesses to the world. That Jesus is leaving the world, Jesus is departing, Jesus is going back to heaven, back to the glory that belongs to the Father, back to Um, When Jesus enters into heaven, Jesus will sit down on a throne where he's reigning and ruling and interceding, but he leaves the church here in the world. That you and I, like Jesus, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. As one preacher, Stephen Lawson said, that 
the boat is in the water, but there shouldn't be any water in the boat, okay? That's what he's praying. I'm leaving them in the world, but they're not of the world. And you and I, we have a mission while we live in this world. That's why he didn't take us out of the world. That's why you don't get saved and then immediately get raptured up into heaven. Why? What's his purpose in that? His purpose is so that you could be light shining in the darkness so that we collectively can be lights shining in the darkness. Or what he says to the church in Philippi, that you may shine out as, as, as lights, as stars in the heavens. That's why he's left us here. And so how is Jesus glorified in the church? Well, in the same way, he's glorified in our security. He's glorified in our purity. He's glorified in our unity. Like whenever I say he's glorified in our security, I don't mean but whenever we play it safe. In fact, just the opposite. It's when we live uh, courageous lives of faith. But what do I mean by that? As we'll even see, it's whenever our, our faith is being guarded. It's when we, you and I are living lives full of faith, when you and I are living our daily lives as, as if Jesus lives on a throne, as if Jesus is reigning and ruling, and that matters to you and to how you live out your lives. That's what it means. I mean, all of us have been affected on some level of people who have renounced their faith or left their faith or no longer living for Jesus. Now living for the world, we've been affected by that. And Jesus is praying that you and I would be secure in our faith, full of faith, that we would arrive in heaven full of faith in Jesus. He's praying that our faith would be made whole and that our faith would stay secure. He also is praying for us that we would be pure. Like there's no win whenever you and I, as the church, live like the world and look like the world. That's not a win for Jesus. But Jesus is, is guarding his church from legalism, but he's also uh, guarding his church from licentiousness. That's living as if there is no law, living as if you could just free to live however you live. And so Jesus is praying that he would be glorified by, his, by security, by purity, and by unity when you and I are genuinely love one another. When you and I live in genuine community and care for one another as Jesus is part of Jesus's family. So he's praying that for us, that we would live like that so that we would glorify him and so that we would shine like, like stars in the heaven, that we would shine as lights in this dark world. Let's break down and look at the text. Jesus first, he prays for our security. We see this in verses 12 through 16. Jesus says, while I was with them, verse number 12, I kept them. I'm holding them, I'm keeping them in your name, which you have given me. Jesus said, I have guarded them. That's the word garrisoned. I, I, put a, I put an army guarding them around them, if you will, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, if there was a period where there is this comma in this verse, we'd be in trouble. If Jesus said not one of them had been lost, you and I would say, hold on a minute, I've read the gospels and what about Judas? Judas has been lost. And so Jesus here, he clarifies that none of them that has been lost that have been given to me except for Judas is who he's referring to, the son of destruction. What he means, well, the word destruction there just means the lostness is actually what it means. When Jesus says this, he's like, the son of lostness has been lost. And he says, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In there, he's saying, hey, this has already been prophesied. We already knew this was gonna happen. This didn't take you by surprise that there would only be 11 that would remain, 11 that would stay. Jesus goes on and he says here, um, but now I am coming to you. So I'm ascending into heaven. And these things I speak, I mean, that will happen in some 40 plus days, but nevertheless, I'm, I'm heading that way. I'm coming to you. 
the trajectory is set. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now notice what Jesus says. Jesus says he is giving the disciples the word that if you were to look at the entire high priestly prayer and mark out the numbers of times that Jesus refers to his word, it's mind boggling how many times he refers to the truth that he has given his disciples. He's given the church his word. And what he means by his word is, it's the whole body of teaching that originates with God. I've given them the word. This is already happening. This refers to the full revelation of God. He's referring to the Old Testament that they have, that Jesus has been teaching and preaching from. He's given the, the, the full body of Jesus's teaching that he's been proclaiming and telling them and speaking authoritatively. Remember, Jesus would walk into a, to a synagogue and begin to teach and people go like, holy cow, I've never heard anyone teach this way. I've never heard anyone teach with such authority because he's God. He's revealing that. Jesus also is giving them his word and his very presence as the revelation of God among them. And also Jesus referring to this as to what he's already alluded to, that they will be the writers of the New Testament. So Jesus says, I'm giving them the word. This is already happening. The plan is unfolding. The word of God, the revelation of God is being entrusted to these men and their associates. But I want you to notice that the word produces two effects. Because maybe list off a number of effects, but here in this text, we have the effects of Jesus's word. First, in the disciples, the word produces joy. In disciples, the proclamation and the preaching of God's word, when we read God's word and savor God's word and study God's word, when we spend our time in God's word, it produces or it should produce joy. Now, sometimes it wrecks us, sometimes it cuts us, sometimes it hurts us. As the writer of Hebrews talks about, God's word is, it's sharp, it's active, it's powerful. This is like a two-edged sword. And he goes on to say, it, it cuts you open and, lay, and cuts you asunder. It's like you, sometimes you read God's word and it's like you've gone in to, to, to have surgery, right? And the surgeon, in order to remove the cancer that's in your body, the surgeon must first fillet you open and open you up to go in to remove the what's cancerous inside of you. And in the same way, what's cancerous inside of us is sin. And God's word, it fillets us open, it cuts us open in order to remove that from us. Now, is that a loving thing or an unloving thing? When the doctor removes, right, a a malignant tumor inside of you, is that a loving thing or an unloving thing? Well, it's a professional thing, but it's also a very loving thing. And the same way God's word sometimes goes after that out of love for us to purify us, to sanctify us. But ultimately, even in that, whenever we repent of sin, we see sin, it grieves our heart, we repent of it, it should produce joy. Jesus says, I speak these things to them, but now I am coming to you. These things I speak in the world, that they, that the disciples that the church may have joy fulfilled in themselves. The ministry of God's word, it brings joy to our hearts, but that's to us in the church. But what about the world? As Jesus speaks this out, notice in the world, the word produces hatred. I have given them, verse number 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. It is God's word. It's the word of God 
that calls us and separates us from the world. And it is the word that produces joy in us. It's the word that sustains us. It's the word that grows us. It's the word that matures us. But that same word incites anger and hostility and hatred in the world toward us. So when John talks about the world, and John loves to talk about the world, um, I think some 70 times between the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, John uses the phrase, the world. When John speaks of the world, it's the word cosmos. It's this present evil system. Say this uh, for the last couple of weeks, but I just want us to be sure that we understand that it has fallen and it's under the power of Satan himself. But let me just say this as a side note, the world doesn't always look evil, like appear to be evil. The world is always evil. It's a fallen system of evil, but it doesn't always appear to be evil on the outside. But sometimes the world looks like success and getting and climbing and acquiring. That the world isn't always found in dark seedy strip clubs and back alleys with needles hanging out of people's arms. The world is also in well-lit corporate offices. John will write um, in 1 John, he'll say that, um, may we not love the world or the things in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. See, that's not something that's found in back alleyways. That's something that's found all over America. And John says it's part of this world. But here's also the deal. Not every church is hated by the world. Maybe I should say it like this. Not every church is hated by the world. There are many churches that feel very at home in this world. They're very much welcomed by this world. That hatred of the world is, is not the goal but it's in an, it's, it is, as Jesus says here, it's an inevitable and unavoidable consequence of believing and teaching the word of God. There are teachings in, this, in the Bible that are very appealing to this world. Um, there's teachings that run, that run uh, concurrent with this world. They, they believe it, they understand it. There's, there's teachings that are, can be meshed with the teachings and the philosophy of this world. But then the Bible has many truths, many things to say. Even I would say the entire storyline of the Bible runs against the current of this, of, even of this culture, of this world. That the world's philosophy will always lead you to boast in self. And the truths of God's word will always lead us to boast in God. And those are two different things. The world's philosophies will always take us to make much of ourselves and much of man. Like we're still building the Tower of Babel that you find in the book of Genesis. That man wants to exert himself and show his power by building something, accomplish something, doing something to show that he is equal to God. It's the, it's the sin of man. It's the pride of life. And we're still doing that. And it will lead us to boast in ourselves, to boast in man. But God in his word, the storyline of the Bible is God putting his glory on display to humanity so that we don't look at humanity and say, look how great we are. But that we look at God and say, look how awesome he is and we worship him. And so even the virtue of love, 
I mean, right now that's something our culture applauds and we love, we love love, right? Let's talk about love. We love churches that talk about love, but most of the world, the love that the, that the world talks about is a love that leads them to boast in themselves, to say, hey, look how loving I am. Look how, like, right? look how tolerant I am. Look how accepting I am. Look how loving I'm being. And then we Instagram it and post it and do all of those things. And Jesus is, first of all, he's saying, that's not love. That's not love, what you hold and what you do and what you believe in right there. That's not love. This is what true love is, is to speak the truth in love. It's with a genuine affection, but it's also to, to speak it. And a love that doesn't boast in self, a love that never says, hey, look at me. But the type of love that Jesus calls us is to love the least of the folks, folks who can't repay it, right? Folks who don't deserve it. And the world will accept and the world will promulgate a theology that leads us to glory in man, but a theology that leads us to glory in God and God alone, well, that's very off-putting to this world. Our culture prizes tolerance as a supreme virtue. This world will tolerate a great number of things. It will tolerate sexual perversion and spirituality and positivity and good thoughts and vibes, its own brand of morality, it will embrace and believe that good people go to heaven, but it will not tolerate the gospel being preached. The gospel says that we are all sinners in need of a savior. A gospel that says there are none good, no, not one. A gospel that says no one seeks God, no one looks for him. A gospel that says that salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone, in faith in Christ and in faith in Christ alone. Well, that is very off-putting. The gospel and the teachings of the Bible in regards to the fall of humanity or our sexuality, gender distinction, the authority of God and his word, biblical stewardship, right? And a hundred other things are things that are clearly offensive to the word. I mean, clearly offensive to the world, even though they're taught in the word. I had a dear friend tell me whenever I was, early on, um, actually in the ministry of the Point Community Church. And he said, Pastor Andy, let me tell you how to grow your church. He said, there's a guy on TV and he's grown his church and I've watched him. I've actually went down there and I saw, and here's the key. Don't ever talk about anything negative. Zero negativity in the church. Just talk about what's positive and people will flock. And ignore God's word. And people flock and they smile and they hold up their Bibles and they say their little mantra and then they die and they stand before the just judge of the universe in sin with sins upon their hands. May that pastor be accursed. That's not loving his congregation. That's patting his pocketbook. That's patting his ego. That is not a shepherd shepherding his flock. A true shepherd Open up, opens up God's word and makes known the entire counsel, the full counsel of God who preaches both the great positive things that are true for us, the joys that await us and the glories that are ours to share and the goodness of the gospel and the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and also preaches the purity of God's people that instructs and informs people that we cannot applaud sin and call ourselves Christians. We cannot do that. 
must stand for Christ and Christ alone and believe in him. And a world that applauds tolerance will quickly turn from intolerance to hatred. If we say that we believe these things and preach these things, if you don't believe me, post, go on Instagram, go on Facebook and see what happens. Go on Twitter. And when Jesus says though, he's speaking this of the church, I'm leaving you in the world. You're gonna stay there, you're gonna remain them. But he prays, and if you would, you can even mark these in your Bible. Hey, you can mark them in a pew Bible, I don't care. Like I know some of you grew up like, hey, the greatest sin was to like write in the Bible. And I just don't believe that to be so, right? If you don't believe me, look at my personal Bible. I have the coloring book edition of the Bible, right? So that's the one I have. And so it's okay to underline in your Bible. If you wanna underline in there, I would just say, make your underline straight right? Everything must be done decently in order. No squiggly underlines need to be in God's Bible, right? Like my grandfather, I have a collection of his Bibles. And one of the things that I love so much about his, about reading his books and going through his Bibles is I can see where he's been and see the glories. But sometimes it's like, I can't believe my grandfather would do this is to make a crooked line. I mean, did he not own a ruler? So if you're going to write in your Bibles, just make sure all things are done decently in order and use a ruler underneath. But Nevertheless, if you want to mark some things, a few things you could underline is look, verse number 12, I kept them. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost. Gosh, isn't that good news? Now think about this for a second. Jesus is speaking this specifically about these 11 men. And all of these 11 men will be martyred, persecuted, and put to death. Well, 10 of the 11, as we said, the writer of this gospel, the gospel of John, he'll be exiled to the island of Patmos and Fox's book of the martyrs. It was written like really early on. It kind of chronicles the persecution of the church. Fox's book of the martyrs martyrs says that multiple times they tried to kill John, the writer of the gospel here. They tried to murder him, but they just couldn't do it. I think at one time they tried to boil him alive in oil and he was like, he was miraculously preserved from that. They, you know, again, they send him to the island of Patmos, but other than that, but the other 10 will, will die horrific deaths. So certainly we know that Jesus isn't praying this for their physical bodies. I've kept them, I've guarded them. Not one has been lost. He's not speaking about them physically, protect them from the work of the evil men. What he's speaking about is their faith. Jesus has held their faith. He's sustained their faith. He's kept their faith. He's guarded their faith. Not one of them has ever lost the faith. And why have they not lost the faith? Because of a faithful Christ and a faithful God that's sustaining that. Jude 24, we often use it as our, as our benediction. It's one of my favorite blessings in all the Bible. In fact, it's something that I pray for myself often. I heard John Piper say one time that the, the text of scripture he's prayed over his own life the most is Jude 24. And Jude writes this, and he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's not talking about stumbling and falling, those of you in here with bad balance. He's not talking about that. He's talking about you in your faith, in your walk with the Lord to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says, it goes on, be glory and dominion and power and on and on and on it goes. The picture of this would be Peter. Jesus will say to Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed that your faith may not fail. Even in that, Jesus is teaching about his future ministry as as an intercessor. What's Jesus doing right now? 
Where is Jesus right now? He's on a throne reigning and ruling and interceding for his church. He's right now praying for you and I, those of us who are genuinely his, that our faith may not fail. Isn't that good news? He's guarding you, garrisoning you right now. You are being kept by his power as you right, do the disciplines, as you press into that work, that initiating, giving, life-giving work. That doesn't mean you can harden your heart and walk away from the faith and never open your Bible and never attend church and never do any of those things and think you're okay. That's not what it's saying. Well, my faith's being guarded by Jesus. I prayed a prayer one time. I shook a pastor's hand. I got dunked in a, in a baptismal pool or got whatever, right? I got sprinkled by a priest or whatever it was in your particular uh, experience. You can't just say that. Now I'm free to live however I live and stand before Jesus. No, he's talking about those of us who want to be kept, those of us who want our faith to stay intact. It's Jesus who's keeping it. Jesus is, is giving the power as you and I lean into that power to live lives of faith. All right, that's the, that's the security of the church. Next, let's look at the purity of his church. Jesus prayed for their security and now he's praying for their purity. Look at verse number 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate. That's the same word there as sanctify. I consecrate, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. To sanctify something means to, to cut, to, to cut in order for there to be a separation. So this is the prayer guide. And I will cut a portion of the prayer guide to separate it from the rest of the prayer guide, right? So this is the prayer guide. And now we have um, some notes of a portion of the prayer guide. So what Jesus is saying here, I have sanctified them from the world. I have cut them out of the world. And now there is a separation from them, the church from the world, right? That's the picture. I want you to get that in your head. That's what he's saying to cut them out of the world, to separate them from the world, to make, them, to make their separation now a reality. It's a spiritual truth, but now Jesus is praying in sanctification that it would be a re reality, not just a, a theological idea, a theological construct, something that is spiritual. But here when he's saying sanctify them, it's something that is occurring. It's a reality, make it happen. What he's praying here is he's praying for the personal holiness of every believer. That a holy God demands a holy people. That's the rhythm of the Bible. Go back all the way back into Genesis and Deuteronomy and read through Leviticus. And what's, what you see is over and over again, this rhythm of be holy for I am holy. Peter picks it up in his letters and writings. Be holy as I am holy. A holy God demands a holy people and holiness is the chief attribute of God. When you think about God, his chief attribute is the attribute of holiness. It's, a, it's the attribute of separation. There's none like him. No one is like him. In Isaiah 6, whenever Isaiah has the vision of God, the throne room of God, he has a vision of the inner part, the inner sanctuary of God, and God is high and lifted up, and there's angelic beasts and creatures in there, and they're crying out. And what are the angelic beasts and creatures crying out? Holy, holy, holy is our God. Not love, 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 although God is love, but they're not crying out love, 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 not omniscience, omniscience, omniscience. They're crying out holy, holy, holy. Why are they crying out? Because it is the chief 
attribute of God. God is holy. He's separate. He's different. He's unlike you and me. He's unlike the world. And God is praying for us. I mean, Jesus is praying here that we too would be holy. That God is unlike us in every way. And if God is holy and he is, then what he requires of you and me, what he requires of his people, what he requires of his church is our own personal holiness. That is what is at the heart of this prayer for his church. Sanctify them, make them a holy people, cut them from this world, separate them, set, make them a different, set them apart. That's consecration. Set them apart from the impurities of the world. Set them apart from their own lust. Set them apart unto personal godliness. Consecrate them, purify them, separate them from a profane world. Separate them from their sin. Separate them from sinful desires. Cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Make them holier than they already are. That's a great prayer. Sometimes like we wanna learn how to pray and the disciples go to Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. But here we can learn how to pray for ourselves. And you can learn how to pray for me and my fellow elders right here. Pray for your friends, pray for your community group by looking at what Jesus is praying for. Jesus, I pray that you would glorify yourself in my life. And Jesus, I pray that you would sanctify me from this world. Make me holier than I already am. I think it was Robert Murray McShane who prayed, um, one time in, in one of his prayer journals, he, he said, make me as holy as a sinful man can be. Man, oh man. Oh, if that would be our desire in this church. Oh, what's our desire in this church? What is our desire in this church? Is it for Jesus to be glorified for, for, through our own personal holiness, through our own personal unity? through our own personal security. I pray that it would be. And as I said, this is a great way to pray for me and for my fellow elders. Pray for us, Jesus, that you would sanctify them. Jesus, sanctify my pastors. That they would grow in holiness, personal holiness towards you and that you would be pleased by that, Jesus. You would be glorified by that. Now, when we talk about sanctification and I'll try to move quickly, but there are three aspects of sanctification. I just want to say this for clarification because I understand that sanctification is, a, is one of those uh, church words, right? You've got um, justification and sanctification and glorification, which is all the vacations right there we can talk about, right? Vocation, maybe we can talk about vacation. That's what a lot of you all think about right now is vacation, but we're not talking about that. I know it's a stained glass word that we use in church. So what do you mean by sanctification? And so that's part of my job is to teach you. I love what a good friend of mine who's a, who's a youth pastor in, uh, um, in Versailles, what he likes to say is all his incoming ninth graders, he asks them, can you, can you describe to me the, the process of photosynthesis? Tell me about photosynthesis. And as a ninth grader, a ninth grader can tell you somewhat about photosynthesis. Well, it's how, you know, it's, it's how leaves and green things make, make food and make energy in themselves. And, it should, and he's like, hey, that's great. That's awesome. If you can understand photosynthesis, then you can understand justification, sanctification, and glorification. And I would say same thing, same thing to you. Or even better than this, if you can somehow manage to go into Starbucks and order a drink that is what you had in your mind that you wanted and get that, then you can understand these things, right? I just go in there and say, coffee. Well, you know what I'm saying? Like you can't just go in and say coffee. They don't know what coffee is there. Well, what size? Small. We don't have small, right? They just invent their own language in there. I, 
just confused all the time. But nevertheless, if you can understand those things and you can understand sanctification, when we think about sanctification, think about it like this in three different aspects. The first aspect is positional sanctification. And what I mean by positional sanctification is this. This is a moment in your past that if you are saved, then there was a moment in your past when you were regenerated by the spirit of God and you were sanctified, you were set apart, you were cut apart, right? You were cut out of this world. There was a moment in your past when you were sanctified, when you were cut out of this evil world system and you were consecrated. Sanctification and consecration is basically the same word. You were consecrated unto God. So you were made holy in that. You were positionally taken out of this world and you were set into Christ. And this will never be repeated. This is immediate. If you want to write down a passage of scripture, you can look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Where Paul writes and says, you were washed. You were sanctified. He says, some of you used to do these sinful, you used to live as sinners. You used to practice these sinful things. And he gives a list of the sins that we used to practice. But then he says, but you, that's who you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified. That's a past tense. You were justified by the Lord and the spirit of our God. You were immediately sanctified. You were given a new nature. And from that new nature, that that began a, a radical break from your old way of life. You are now headed in a new direction. You're now living in a new kingdom, a new realm. You were given a new righteousness. Not only have you been forgiven of all your past, of all your sins, past, present, and future, but you've been given Jesus's righteousness. That is Jesus's track record. Jesus's perfect life has been accredited to you. That's what verse 19 is about. And for their sake, Jesus said, I, I sanctify myself. I consecrate my, myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth that Jesus lived a perfect life that you and I could not live. Jesus never one time sinned in word and thought and deed and action. Never one time did Jesus sin. He lived perfectly. He lived absolutely perfectly. And as that perfect life that Jesus lived is accredited and is counted to you when you place faith in Christ, So when you come to Christ, all of your past sins, all of your mistakes, all of your doings, you are not sinless, you are sinful. All of that is forgiven. It's accredited to Christ on the cross and by Christ's substitutionary death, Jesus's blood, it covers all that. We're forgiven by all of that, but you and I are still in a moral problem and a moral dilemma. We're not holy people. Be holy as I am holy. God's standard of morality is holiness, which would be perfection. And you and I can't live that, don't live that, won't live that until we're glorified. We have no righteousness of our own. Even if we could be morally neutral, we still have no righteousness to enter into the heavenlies with, to enter into God's presence with. And so God takes care of that as well in that he accredits Christ's perfection to you. Christ's moral record is accredited to you. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, that's God made him, that's Jesus. For our sake, the father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. He never knew sin, never tasted sin, never did sin, but God made him to be sin, carrying the penalty of that sin so that in him, 
That's in Christ. So that when we're accredited to Christ, when we enter into Christ, cut from this world, but we're not out there by ourselves. We're now given over into, the, into Jesus so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to you, accredited to you. Luther called it a negative, I mean, an alien righteousness. The second one is a progressive sanctification. And that's what Jesus is praying for here. Presently, what I'm praying for is that we would be known by a lifelong pursuit of holiness. That you and I are increasingly becoming holier experientially. We're growing to love God more and more and more. We're growing deeper in our walk with Christ. The spirit and the word are producing in us more and more elements of Christ's likeness. We oftentimes ask ourselves, what is God's will? First Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's what he's praying for, our sanctification, that we may grow in him. That's one of the reasons why we take the Lord's Supper each week. It has multiple purposes, three purposes to it. In just a few minutes, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. And really it does, it has three purposes in it. Remember when, Christ, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth and there's all kinds of abuses to the Lord's Supper and he's called, he, he writes to them to correct some of those. And what does he say the purpose of the Lord's Supper is? It's do this, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So it calls back an event in the past where Jesus died on a cross. It calls back an event in the past, hopefully in, if, you're, if you're saved in your life, whenever you, by belief and faith in Christ, when you were made right, when this blood, this body was accredited to you. But then Paul also writes and he says, now examine yourselves. Make sure that your life, that would be positional sanctification. Make sure your life is, uh, I mean, that would be progressive sanctification. That, that means make sure your life is living in congruence to your positional sanctification. God has said, hey, be holy as I am holy. How about in your life? What can you point at? Where are there areas of your life when you're not living a holy life? Letting God's word cut you open and declare to you. Again, God's word is truth. It's the standard, it's, it's, it's objective, not subjective. It declares to us what, what holy living looks like. Now look at that and look in the word and say, where does my life not live into congruence of that? And the, the Lord's Supper gives us an opportunity to examine our lives and to think about our lives. And if there's places where we're not living progressively, being sanctified, set apart, we get to repent of those. Lord, forgive me, I don't wanna live like that. I want to have new, new affections towards those things. Uh, towards you and I want to have a new hatred toward those things. Set me apart. That's what we pray. And then there's a third aspect, which is also in our, um, in our list, which is perfected sanctification. And perfected sanctification points forward to a day when you will be glorified to be like Christ. Whenever this body of sin, you will be separated from it in finality. And the Lord's Supper gives us the opportunity to think about that as well. Because there's coming a day when you and I, I think Eva said last week, when we will observe this Lord's Supper again with Jesus. And in fact, I wanna do this. Let's go ahead and we're going to enter into the Lord's Supper. Um, I've probably got about 25 minutes worth of notes left back here on the podium. So we won't take a vote as to you want me to preach another 25 minutes or do we wanna come back next week? We'll just come back next week. We don't have anywhere else to go, right? 
It's a good part about this. Hey, I'm not going anywhere. Hopefully you won't go anywhere and we'll see next week and we'll pick up in John 17, um, 17 and, we'll run, and we'll go from there. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. Jesus, we are thankful for your blood. We're thankful for the gospel, your gospel, the gospel of our God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not ours, it's yours. It's your good news that leads us to glory in you and you alone. That you've sought us and you've bought us with your precious blood. We no longer belong to ourselves and certainly we no longer belong to this sinful world. We no longer belong, even though we're in this world, we no longer belong to our adversary, Satan, but we belong body and soul to you for those of us in the room that are saved. And as we come and as we remember this, we also, we remind ourselves of our security that you are feeding our faith. And may we, may we lean into that. May we believe that. May we trust that. May we listen. And may we, may we be empowered by that. That as you, as you feed our faith and you secure our faith and you guard our faith, you're doing that by revealing your will to us and calling us to repentance. You're calling us to put faith. You're calling us to, to pray bold prayers like we find in the, in the hymn that we often sing, oh, for grace to trust you more. I pray for the weak saint that is here this morning, that they would pray that prayer, oh, for grace to trust you more. And Lord, um, help us to think about our own purity in this time that oftentimes we can be um, an expression of your church that heralds freedoms over holiness. And I pray that your, that your spirit would do a merciful work that would purify us. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It begins here in our hearts, in, our in this temple that is yours. Bring your judgment to us. Test us, try us, see if there's any way of offense that is in us. May we have hearts, desires that want to live personal, holy lives before you. Not just lives where we revel in and exalt in our our understanding of freedoms in certain areas and make us a united church, a church that genuinely loves each other and lives in community and put that on display. May you be glorified in that. In your name we pray, amen.